You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. A bit of a different episode of the podcast this week as I am joined by two curlers slash media personalities for a roundtable conversation recapping the 2022-23 curling season. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. For today's virtual roundtable discussion, I am joined by John Cullen, host of the Away Inside podcast, who is also well known for his broadcast work on live streams and for his Cullen on Curling blog. The other member of the roundtable this week is none other than Mike Fournier, a three-time Briar participant. He's also known as a man behind the In the House blog and for his work as a contributor with the Curling News. John, as tends to happen in the first year of a new cycle, we started the 2022-23 curling season with several new teams or revamped lineups, including Jennifer Jones, of course, joining forces with Team Zacharias, Team Botcher, which brought together four players who were on different teams to end the last cycle. Then it was Caitlin Laws in her first season as a skip in over a decade, and so many other examples. Of all those new teams, John, are there a couple that perhaps surprised you with the success they had in their first year together? Ooh, good question. Um, I think the the first one for me, and maybe it wasn't super surprising, but um, I would say Matt Dunstone. I mean, I think going into the year, I really liked the lineup. Like I, you know, I wrote in my newsletter that I thought that, that, you know, I loved the look on paper. Um, But I think if you had told me by the end of this year that there would be a very clear top three in the men's and that Matt Dunstone would be in that top three, um, I would have maybe been surprised by that. I, I would have thought, you know, maybe they were third, but like it was a top two and then they were kind of on the outside of that, maybe looking in or, you know, maybe Mike McEwen's lineup looked pretty good on paper. Like, you know, maybe they would, they certainly were always going to be in that like top five conversation, but I think I was surprised at how good they got, how quickly and how Matt seems uh, ready with this lineup to kind of step up into that upper echelon. So I'd say that was, that's sort of the first one um, that really sticks out for me uh, on the ladies side. I mean, I think it's gotta be Clancy Grandy, uh, you know, right in my backyard here in BC. Um, you know, I think you look at Kayla McMillan, right? Skips last year, makes the women's final in BC, loses to Marianne Arsenault. Kayla never really skipped. She was a third all coming through juniors and everything like that. So I think, you know, when you thought, all right, they're going to, they're going to move down. Then Kayla told me, she's like, this is a one year experiment. We're going to bring in, they were trying to bring in Clancy the year before, and it just didn't quite work out, which is why they brought Jody Maskowitz out of retirement. And so, you know, she said, we're going to get Clancy Grandy next year. Well, you know, I mean, Clancy's a great curler, but she hasn't had a phenomenal run of success at the skip position. I mean, she's played front end for a lot of her career. Um, You know, I think I thought at the time, like, okay, that's a good pickup. It's a young team, get, you know, someone a little older skipping. Um, But I think, you know, no one before the year started would have thought top 10 team, team that challenges for the Scotties playoffs, um, you know, they are, they are firmly in the slams. Um, you know, I think for sure, for me, that was a, a big surprise, not because they're not talented, obviously, Lindsay and Kayla and Sarah, all very talented, but I think that leap was definitely super surprising. 
What about you, Mike? Or are there a couple of lineups, uh, new lineups this year that stood out for you? And by the way, you're not allowed to say Team Mike Fournier. I don't know. I mean, it's there was so many, so much shuffling, but it was all just big names going to big names, you know. So it, it was hard to see some, and nobody really had their same team established except, I guess, Gushu. And even Gushu made a big change, you know. So it, it, I guess everybody was kind of showed up somewhat game ready. I mean, I guess a little surprised uh, to the same extent just how well Dunstone clicked right from the start and, and got rolling. Like, I, I'd agree with John on that And even Botcher got up to speed pretty quickly with some some tough personalities, I think, to to play with. Like, I mean, guys that are phenomenal curlers, but just you got to assume it takes a while. But I guess they're at that level, they're so professional and so easy to slot in and fill in. I guess I shouldn't be that surprised. But I was amazed at how natural they looked on the ice pretty quickly. Um, on the women's side, I, I think just Jennifer Jones, like, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people had kind of counted her out, you know, said, well, she's going to go to this team, kind of be a coachy kind of mentor for a couple of years until they get good. And they got really good. <laughs> you know, they started off with a pile of money at the beginning. They started off, you know, they, they, they looked serious. They looked good all the time I saw them, um, you know, and they were playing with a five man rotation, which is tough to do. Uh, you know, and then made it as far as they did at the Scotties was just, uh, I thought, a great accomplishment for that team. I thought way ahead of where I would have put them at the beginning of the season. I mean, it's Jennifer Jones, so it's hard to call her a huge surprise, but just with that lineup, and I thought it was awesome. Mike, you mentioned in passing that Team Jones made a lot of money to start the season, and that was primarily by winning the inaugural points bet invitational. Now, the topic has been a little overdone at this point, but since we're doing a recap of the season, what were your thoughts, Mike, on the fact that gambling sites have quickly become pervasive in the sport of curling, just as they have in most other sports, and, and more specifically to the event itself? What did you think of the single elimination format? Oh, wow, that's a deep question. I, I mean, the sports betting, I, I mean, I've written a bit on a bunch on that this year. I, I, I think it, it's kind of nefarious. I think to some extent it makes sports a little worse. I mean, although I, I don't know, I'm, I seem to be a dinosaur in that view. And a lot of people are like, Oh, this is making sports better. It makes it more interesting. And I, I don't know. I can't watch a hockey game now without everybody telling me what the, uh, you know, what the, uh, the parlay is on uh, somebody scoring a goal in the third period. I'm like, I don't really care. You know, <laughs> but that's where we, uh, that's where the games have gone now. I think that's where curling's gone to some extent uh, with the gambling. But has it, is it good for the sport? I don't think so. But, I mean, money is money, right? So, and, and it's hard for curling a sport where there there is a lack of sponsorship. And it is hard to get money. It is hard to find the, the funding to do what teams need to do to be great. Uh, you know, it's hard to say no to money. And, and you know, I, I, I don't begrudge the teams and I don't begrudge the events that are that are opening up their doors to it. But... It's uh, it still scares me a lot. Uh, I mean, as to as to the format of it, I think it's kind of dumb. I mean, I don't know. You're having teams that you know travel to wherever for a one game. Uh, you know, you're having some teams that clearly don't belong there playing in it. You know, just for the the thrill of playing in it. I mean, you know, and yeah, maybe they'll be an upset. You never know with a club team or the junior team beating somebody big, but kind of unlikely. I mean, you know, that's going to be. You know, probably one of the teams winning, but I mean, the single knockout kind of thing just for curling doesn't really make a lot of sense for us. But uh, I mean, it's a kickoff. I mean, I don't know. It's it's a made-for-TV event, so it's hard to complain too much about it. I mean, it's it, it it beckons back to the days of like the TSN Skins game or something, right? Which you know was this 
ridiculously overpriced event for for what it was but it was awesome it was great tv and everybody aspired to get there you know so yeah just making all the teams travel to it just seems kind of a weird weird way of doing it and john i know that you have a little bit of a different take on the involvement of betting sites in the sport of curling but do you have any concern with the fact that we have now now have junior teams participating in an event sponsored by a betting site. And to be fair, John, I don't think that participating in a spiel sponsored by a betting site will have a negative impact on any participating junior player. But in the eyes of many, the optics are not great. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know what opinion I have on that or not. I mean, full disclosure, uh, I did some work with PointsBet this year. Uh, me and John Morris did some some uh, preview videos for the Briar and the Scotties. So they signed a few checks with my name on it this year. So, um, you know, I, I agree in the sense that, um, you know, is that a little bit strange? Maybe, but also are there sports happening you can bet on where there's people who can't bet on them? Absolutely. Are there hockey players or baseball players that are 19 years old playing in a major league game and people who are over 21 can drink in the ballpark and they can't drink, you know, like, I think it's just one of those things that I agree that like from a perception standpoint, it, you know, maybe it doesn't pass the smell test at first, but then at the end of the day, it's also like, I don't think I care enough to really like have an opinion one way or the other. I don't think it's ruining it like to me having a U18 team in an event you can bet on is not wrecking someone's life one way or the other like if you're if you, if gambling's going to ruin your life it's going to ruin your life i don't think it's uh you know I, I i don't know i don't really have an issue with uh with that i don't think it's all that connected and and i just sort of agree with mike i, I think it's not even just the money i i think you know having been behind the scenes a little bit uh you know working with points bet this year it's not just the money. Like they want to promote curling. Like they, they want to be really involved in it. It's not not just a like, Hey, you know, we see an opportunity to get our name on something. So we're going to throw a bunch of money at it. Like, you know, they brought all those curlers out to, or sorry, all those celebrities out to New Brunswick for the pro-am game to generate some interest. And I know Johnny Moe went to the worlds in Ottawa and they want to start doing like interactive events and, these kinds of things like it's not and and they have a lot of ideas for like putting on maybe some of their uh, some other of their own events in the future that are maybe going to have a little bit more of a non-traditional but more exciting spin like I I think I I think at least I can only speak to the points bet perspective but I know at least for for them um, you know they really want to get involved in the sport they think there's a big opportunity in curling not just from a gambling perspective but just from a, a, an, a you know a, an elevating the sport perspective and I think that's positive it, it's a lot better than a just you know someone cuts a check and then they say okay whatever happy birthday go have fun and they don't pay attention and they don't want to be involved so the other big new event on the calendar this season was the Pan Continental Championship, which replaced the Pacific Asia Championship and allowed teams from both North and South America to compete with teams from the Pacific Asia region for spots at the World Championship. Now, I can appreciate that in theory, the PanCon event provides non-traditional curling nations with a chance at reaching the worlds. But, but John, is it safe to say that we can expect countries such as Canada, the United States, Korea, and Japan to mostly dominate that event, at least in the near future, against countries that are mostly still developing their curling programs? Yeah. Hard to wrap my head around that as an interesting event to consume this year, I have to be honest. Uh, I was in Calgary uh, doing the uh, broadcasting the Autumn Gold at the same time that the PanCon was... Uh, was launching and yeah it is 
like you said, it's going to be a while. I don't think it's bad, you know, but I also, part of me looks at the Briar and Scotties, you know, and we said, okay, we got to give Yukon and Northwest Territories and none of it a spot. And they're going to, you know, it's going to take a while, but eventually they're going to be good. Um, and where it's 20 years later, and they're still not very good most of the time. So, and in none of its case, often not even sending a rep. So I think, you know, the world game is, I think in smaller countries going to continue to largely be a mixed doubles game and, and maybe triples, you know, there's, I think there's, there's some movement behind the scenes. Uh, I think for triples to maybe start to get going in the junior ranks and, 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 you know, maybe for these smaller countries, it's just always the less players you have, maybe the more, the easier it is to get funding and, and to do these kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's nice to see um, like Guyana, I think is in it next year. And so like, it's great to see those countries in it, but, but yeah, like, are we 20 years away? And, and the problem is, and this is what you run into with none of it in the territories in the Briar and Scotties as well is like, in 20 years, whoever's Guyana right now will be done. Like the, those four players will be finished playing and are there people coming underneath them? And a lot of times that's the problem, right? It's the, you gotta be, you can't just say, okay, well, we got four curlers from wherever and they're going to, we're going to just get them into the pan con every year. And then all of a sudden they're going to be good. It's like, well, they're probably not going to be good by the time they're done. And if you don't have a junior program or something to, to help that out, and I'm not, I'm not picking on any country in particular. I'm not saying that countries aren't trying to do this, but I think that's always going to be the problem is like, I think if we're 20 years away, we're, we might, it's the Bruno Caboclo thing all over. We're 20 years away from being 20 years away. I think in, in some countries cases, probably. John raises an interesting point, Mike. It's difficult for many of these non-traditional curling countries to truly take that next step in their development if their players never get any reps against good competition while playing on good ice. The Koreans, as an example, have done this very well. Each year they, they send a few men's and women's teams to Canada and they, and they all seem to play 10 or 12 events across Canada in the early part of the season, giving their players reps against top-tier competitions and often scoring enough points to get into even bigger events. Now, I realize that Korea has a different funding model than several of these other countries, Mike, that are much earlier in the development of their curling programs, but I wonder if playing a couple more events each season against good competition might help some of these countries to shift the balance of power in the PanCon a little more quickly. I mean, as a specific example, I know that the team that represented New Zealand at the Men's Worlds this year will be spending a chunk of time in Canada next year to play in events, gain experience, and play against top-tier competition. I mean, I, I think the challenge is you go down the world. Yeah, it's it, you have to ask the question of what am I trying to accomplish, right? Uh, are we trying to grow the game of curling or are we trying to grow the number of countries that can competitively send a team to the Olympics? Because the two are not the same, right? And, and we get mixed up with those two questions sometimes. We say, oh, we're growing the game of curling. Look, there's a curling team coming out of whatever country. Uh, you know, and, and you can talk about a lot of the, you know, a lot of countries, the smaller curling countries are sending really great teams and they come and they train. And if you take you know, a, a small handful of people and you train the, the crap out of them and you let them devote a ridiculous amount of time to curling and you send them to Canada to play the big spiels and you get them pro coaching from everywhere, you're going to make them good and they're going to be competitive at a world level and you're going to see whatever country decides to invest. I mean, I'm waiting to see the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Dubai curling team, Dubai curling 
league come, right? Because it's just going to take one guy with a pile of money to build a curling site and train a bunch of people up. And, you know, maybe it'll take 10 years, but they'll get there if you have money, time, resources. But, I mean, if you're asking the question of how you grow the game of curling, you know, I mean, I, I think there's probably more people that curl at the curling club that I'm a member at in Toronto than probably a number of the countries put together, you know, in terms of, of, of membership. So when you're talking about growing the game of curling, it's almost an irrelevant question to me. You know, it's like, okay, do we want to have these teams continue to develop and, and travel the world and do this? I, I mean, I think that's the goal for the, the world Curling and federation to be recognized as Olympic, to be recognized as a world sport. Is it growing the game of curling? I think it's just a different objective. You know, I want to skip ahead to our national championships now, Mike, starting with the Scotties, where Team Anderson just incredibly won their fourth consecutive title. But yet some would argue that the team remains mostly underappreciated in the Canadian curling landscape, where talking about the women's game still often centers around Team Jennifer Jones and Team Holman. Do you get that sense, Mike? Do you feel like Team Anderson still might be underappreciated despite all their success at the uh, Scotties over the past four seasons? I mean, I think that that's more a function of them not performing as well at a world level, you know, and I'm not, not by no means throwing them under the bus or anything. It's, it's a hot, it's a tough game. And, you know, the, the world teams are tough that they're losing to Switzerland's like a crazy good curling team right now. Um, you know, but uh, the reality is that Jennifer Jones got the love because she'd win the Scotties and then she'd go win the worlds a lot of times, you know, and um it, it's or win the Olympics, you know, so how do you I, I think it'll to be truly that level of appreciated. She'll have to win something like that. Uh, having said that, I mean, it's phenomenal. The accomplishment of winning four Scotties in a row is, is unbelievable in the field that she beat this year, the field that she beat last year. I mean, uh, you know, she's uh, there and they seem to be able to play at a level at the Scotties that is just amazing. And and. If it's funny because they, they seem to not be able to hit that level in a lot of other places. I mean, occasionally you see it in a slam, but uh, I don't know. I, I haven't seen them play that as well at the Worlds. I don't know if it's ice conditions. I don't know if it's just I, – I, like, I don't know what it is. Like, I mean, it's it's a fair question to ask because I'd I love to see that team. They just seem to be able to shift it into a different gear when they're in the Scotties playoffs, you know. And, John, I know you've covered Team Anderson a lot over the past few seasons. Do you think they're still under the radar despite all their success? Could it be as simple as the fact that there simply isn't a big personality on Team Anderson, someone who, who will draw the attention of media and fans the way some players do onto the other top Canadian teams? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think I agree with what Mike said. Absolutely. I think if we're talking like they've won four Scotties and they won three world golds, I think we're talking about it totally different. I also think... They didn't have a great Olympic trials. Uh, you know, they made the playoffs, but they scratched and clawed to get there and they just never had their best game. And whether you like it or not, that is the biggest stage right now. So, you know, you can, they could win the next three Scotties heading into the next quad. And if they crash out of the Olympic trials, people go, yeah, seven Scotties in a row is pretty good. But, you know, you didn't make the Olympics. You didn't even make a, a trials final. Like if they don't make the trials final, they'll have never made a trials final. So I think that's part of it. I do also agree that I think personality has something to do with it. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, that as a complete indictment of this sport and the way it's covered. Uh, we just, nobody tries. So, uh, you know, some of us try, I think three of us who try are on this call right now, but um, yeah, you got a four time Scotty's champion who talks to Carrie. No one ever. So, you know, I think Jennifer Jones, 
I think the wins obviously helped and the longevity helps, right? I mean, Jennifer's been at it, you know, she won a Canadian juniors in 1992 or 93 or whatever it was. So, you know, you're talking 30 years of, of dominance at the women's game, but Jennifer is also, uh, you know, an outgoing personality. Uh, she has tried very hard to cultivate her brand and get herself out there. And those, the Anderson team, that's just not their personalities, really. You know, Carrie and Val in particular, uh, you know, I've known Val for a long time. She's quiet and shy and, you know, same with Brienne. I think I don't know Brienne super well. Shannon is a great talker. I've interviewed her a few times. I'm sure you have too, Frank. You know, Shannon's great and Carrie's great too. Like they all have great personalities, but it's also like curling is not a star making sport. If you become a star in curling, you make your own star. You know, so it's like, that's why we see Brad and Jennifer and Glenn and Kevin Martin. And it's like the people who have become stars in curling have become stars of their own accord. They've done things to become a star. Um, the game, I think, does the media, we do a disservice to the curlers. Like, I think that's a big part of the problem. Like, if you say, oh, well, does Carrie Anderson fly under the radar because of her personality? I, no, I don't think it has anything to do with her specific personality. I think it has to do with the fact that curling does not have a star making system. And in fairness, hockey doesn't really either. I think it's something that hockey is also terrible at. I think it's kind of a uniquely Canadian Canadian entertainment. I say that as a comedian, we're also uniquely bad at creating stars. So I'm not, I'm not piling on to curling media, but I do think that, um, there just needs to be so much more done to raise up those personalities. Like that's what other sports do. It doesn't matter if the person is shy, they get made in, they can be made into a star. And we've never really tried to do that with Carrie's team. And I think that's part of the problem too. With regards to the Briar gentlemen, it would be easy for us to have a chat about whether or not we think Brad Gushu ended the conversation on who is the greatest Canadian male curler in history with his victory at the Briar this season. But that's a conversation that's happened a lot in different media over the past couple of months. The individual I want to focus on is one Matt Dunstone, who has certainly been a key part of the playoff mix in the past couple of Briars. Now, John, do you think it's only a matter of time before Dunstone gets his first Briar title? Or is there a possibility now that the increasing pressure that Matt and the boys will feel as a team will make it even more difficult for them to get over that hump. Not unlike a team that uh, Dunstone's third uh, uh, BJ Newfelt is very familiar with, and that's Mike Muke, Mike McCune's team from about a decade ago, uh, when that team was so dominant on tour and in slams, but they kept going to provincials and losing there. And this was in the era before uh, wildcard teams. So basically one of the best teams in the world wasn't in the briar for four or five straight years there when Mike McCune was so dominant, yet they kept losing in that provincial final. I mean, I think they can, but I also think what you said is is also a possibility. I mean, I think we're talking, like you said, Brad Gaju, uh, you know, one of the best ever, if not the best ever he might be by the time he's he's hanging him up. You know, it's tough to really say right now with, uh, you know, with him still playing. But yeah, I mean, certainly he's right in that convo. So, you know, it, it's um, not to compare my own career to anybody at all, but like, you know, I happened to be the best I ever was at curling and Jim Cotter won eight out of the 10 BC provincials I went to. Like sometimes, as the kids would say, it do be like that sometimes, you know, uh, Matt Dunstone can be number one in the world. He can be amazing. And, you know, Brad's just the best ever. And then even if you beat Brad, then maybe you got to beat Botcher. 
and they they look really really good too you know and then you know there's obviously teams just below them too that are good I think McEwen's new team is going to be a pretty nice team obviously Kevin Cooey with his youth movement he's right in the mix too like so that's the thing is it yeah like could Matt win the next two or three briars and go to the Olympics in 2026? Absolutely. Could he win zero briars and not go to the Olympics in 2026? Absolutely. Both are real world possibilities, but I do think, I think this is the best lineup Matt's had. And I think um, I wrote about this in a newsletter, but I think BJ Newfeld for me is one of the most, if not the most underappreciated player of this generation. Um, you know, he's only, he only won one Briar. So in some ways, you know, I think it is a bit of a results-based business and I think that's part of it. But as far as, you know, the right personality elevates his game at the right time, to me, one of the best thirds to ever play. And I think he's the right mix for Matt. I think, you know, I think Matt had a good thing with Braden, but, you know, Braden can be a bit fiery and there's, a, you know, I, I think BJ's sort of level headedness is exactly where, cause Matt, obviously, as we know, very emotional guy, I think BJ's exactly the right player for him. So I think both are possible, but I would say my, my, I, to me, I think they're the clear top three. And I think by the end of this quad, there's a very good chance that Botcher will have a briar and Dunstone will have a briar. What about you, Mike? Uh, you've played against Dunstone and the other top teams in the country. Uh, do you think that he's on the cusp or do you have uh, a view similar to John's uh, where Dunstone certainly will be in the mix over the coming years, but there's no guarantee that he will ever get over that hump and win a briar? I mean, I, I had a coach who, who told us, you know, he said, uh, you know, he said, wait, you, you can never, you never know when you're going to get get into the house but he says what you have to do is get yourself good enough so that you're up on the balcony so that if you get a chance and the screen door opens a crack you can just you, you can go in sometimes you know and, and sometimes it just takes that luck to or and sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't sometimes you're waiting on the balcony on the steps for the whole time you know it, you have to be so good to win at this level now like I, I I was at the prior this year and I was just blown away watching that like I was at the the one two game or the page, you know, Dunstone Gushu game was one of the best played curling games I have just ever, I've ever seen. Like how good Dunstone had to be to win that game, to get by Gushu, to make it to the final. That's just to make it to the final, you know, was unbelievable. Like it, it, they were perfect that game. They had to be absolutely perfect. Not perfect with normal shots, like perfect with, 20 foot runbacks, you know, perfect with everything, every freeze, every tap, every hack weight come around hit, you know, it, it was astonishing to watch, you know, and then you got to go back and do it again on Sunday because you're still playing Gushu who's still going to curl 95 freaking percent against you, you know, like it, it, it's so hard at that level. So do they have the game to get there? Absolutely. Will he, I, I think to John's point, could he win zero in the next few years? Yeah, absolutely. You know, well, but, I think too for uh, me, I think it's he like set the, himself up for it, though. Yeah. Sorry, just to piggyback no, off you, Mike, too. Like, I think it's not even just the games you watch the top teams play; it's how badly the top teams batter the mid-tier teams, like teams that are really good. You know, like I mean, you know, Mike, you're a little bit older than me, but even you know, when we were both coming up, it was like any given briar you'd go okay. There's like six or seven teams that could win this if they get hot and they get on. There was no guaranteed victory and i go back to like a, you know a guy you played with for a long time felix aslan i think his team is really really good you know i think they're as good as menard ever was coming out of quebec i was super impressed with them this year 
And like, they're not that close. No, no offense, but like, it just that, that it's just the gap is there. It's like Gushu has the ability to beat Felix 10 out of 10 times. Whereas like in the old days, you'd say, oh, well, Martin might've won the Briar in 1995, but was he going to beat Kerry Burtnick 10 out of 10 times? No, you know, or whoever the mid or whatever the mid tier team is, Brad Height, was he going to beat Brad Height 10 out of 10 times? No. Whereas now you can say like, the number one team in Canada can beat the number eight or 10 team in Canada, like nine or 10 times out of 10. So to me, that's where you really see it. It's like, you're obviously seeing the amazing games at the top, but it's the ability of the top teams to beat the mid tier teams that really sticks out to me. And moving on to the men's worlds now, John, and it sounds weird to phrase it this way because they're still such a young team, but how impressed were you that team Moat finally won their first world championship after being in the mix over the past few seasons? Yeah. Um, what a team, you know, what more can you say? I think, you know, Mike talking about that one, two game for me, um, straight up the gold medal game, uh, last year, Mawad Adin, I think is the best curling game ever played. Um, and again, yeah, you're talking about Bruce Mawad. They're all under 30, maybe Hammy's just over 30, but the other three are under 30. Um, you know, and you talk about, yeah, one of like probably the best curling game ever played was by guys who are like 27 years old. That's where the sport's going. I think that's good for the sport. Um, and I also think it put Canada on notice. I think that's why you're already seeing these top three Canadian teams separating themselves from the pack because they watched that gold medal game too. And they went, oh shit, we're in some trouble. This is, we got, we got to be better. Like we have to be better, you know? And I saw it. I saw Botcher all year long working with Paul Webster. Like they, they were winning stuff and and were unhappy. Um, and so, you know, I think that's the level that Mao it's at. And um, four great guys, too. What great ambassadors for the sport. Uh, you know, can't say more about the four of those guys. Great curlers, polite, good talkers, good interviewers. Bruce, obviously, breaking boundaries, being uh, a gay man, uh, skipping a, a world championship team. Incredible you know, the story is great. They deserve it. They work harder than anybody, I think, or as hard as anybody else works. Um, and uh, yeah, I was I was thrilled for them, thrilled to see them break through. Uh, no one would say it wasn't well-deserved, that's for sure. And Mike, I've got to ask you, how many club curlers do you think hit the ice the day after Nicholas Hedin made his now famous spinner shot against Norway at the Men's Worlds to see if they could duplicate it? Every club curler in Canada tried that <laughs> shot the next day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that was a ridiculous shot. I, I still it, the most impressive thing about that was it just it, it it obviously wasn't the first time he'd done it and made it and made it look routine. <laughs> you know, it was like you know, it, 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 honestly unbelievable. But uh, I mean, talking about Moet though, that, that they are just outstanding. It, it seems for a team now to be dominant the way they are and the way a few teams are. It's really teams that that get more figure out how to get more out of sweeping uh than every other team in the world moet definitely they get they just get something about it you know and i know they've screwed around with the number of rotations they throw just how they sweep the angling of the broom the knifing the whatever you know and it, they just make the rocks do whatever the hell they want um and and i like using the yellow fabric i know how hard that is you know how in shape those guys have to be how good they have to be but just also the way they have to throw the rock to the sweeper you know perfectly every time is uh uh they've really got something like they, they figured it out and they're a notch above everybody else right now on that i think and john have you given the adine spinner shot a try at your local club 
I don't, I don't curl. Um, I, I, uh, I learned I'm a lot better at talking about curling than I am curling. I think sometimes in a man's life, you got to take a step back and realize what you're good at. Uh, so no, I did not. Um, and no, I wouldn't have made it either. So I, I already, I, 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 I didn't need to go I, I out have, and throw. Uh, I have tried a spinner against Gushu at the Briar and was nowhere within the vicinity of making it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> the Indian shot was certainly incredible and it got a lot of attention, which is always good for the sport. Uh, the one thing I found a little bit strange was that some people were describing the shot as a revolutionary moment in the history of the, the sport of curling, which, which to be perfectly honest, I thought was a bit of a stretch. Uh, I, I tend to disagree. I think it's a little bit revolutionary. Not I, To me, it's not... It's not revolutionary in the sense that, like, no, I do not think that every team is going to be trying to do this every game. Like, there's maybe going to be, if you're a top-level team and you're playing, you know, 60, 70 games a year against top competition, how many times is that really going to come up? Maybe you throw one to three of them a year. You know, it's not going to be crazy. But and to me, it's going to be a last end desperation. Totally, shot, right? I mean, totally. One hundred percent. You're always going to favor the like, oh, could we make this angle double run? You know, you're always going to look at that first, I think. You're, so you're right. But to me, it's revolutionary in the sense that, like, we haven't seen it before. So that to me, that's automatically or at least at that level of competition this year, Oscar did it in Penticton. The crazy thing about Oscars was it was a draw. Oscar was trying to do it as a draw because he thought with the way that that path moved, they, they, there was no way they were going to be able to get where he wanted to get to without them spinning it because you get all the finish at the end when you spin it. And so they tried to do it with a draw and they were damn close. So you, that's how you know they were practicing it when Oscar, who was skipping for Nicholas when he was hurt, tried it in Penticton. But yeah, to me, it's, it is revolutionary because it's like, it's a revolutionary in the same way that sort of the sweeping techniques we learned after Broomgate were revolutionary. It's like, we've thought, we thought we knew every curling shot that there was that you could make. And now all of a sudden there's another one that we know you can make. So to me, that's automatically revolutionary. And John, just a few weeks after uh, team Anderson won their fourth consecutive uh, Scotty's championship, uh, team Tiranzoni of Switzerland upped the ante by winning their fourth straight world championship against a very tough field. And it was doubly impressive because they did it with a new, um, a new front end, two players that they had not played with last season when they won their third consecutive world championship. Now, I know these were both experienced players. They were very talented, but just because you bring talented players into a team doesn't always mean they're going to gel well together. So how impressed were you with Team Tiranzoni, the fact that they not only won their fourth straight consecutive world championship, but they did so with a new front end? Very impressed. I mean, especially when you consider what happened with their team after, too. It's pretty clear they went into the Worlds uh, and things were not going great with Briar. So, uh, like, so they won with probably knowing at the time that that Briar wasn't going to be on the team anymore because you don't go undefeated at a Worlds and and kick someone off your team uh, unless there's some underlying thing going on there. So, yeah, I mean, super impressive. I mean, I think it really, you know, to your point, I, I think you know, Carol and Briar, obviously tons of experience, great curlers. So, you know, I, I think, I think in countries like Switzerland, those switches aren't as big to me as Canada. It, it's almost like, you know, they speak of uh, in hockey in particular, there are certain organizations in hockey where they force their farm teams to play the exact same systems as their parent club. So that when you call someone up to the parent club, 
the player already knows all the systems and they're not out of place. And I think that that's somewhat similar in, in a curling in a, in a smaller curling pool, like Switzerland, I don't think it's as big of a change to bring two people onto the team. Cause they kind of have just come up in the program. Uh, but to me, it's just all about Alina, right? I mean, Alina just, there's something about playing at the worlds. Uh, she just blacks out for 10 days and looks unstoppable. And, and obviously that's not to discredit anyone else. Sylvana's a legend and all that, but to me, it's just, yeah, it's who cares who's I could play front end, uh, you know, and they, we'd probably win and I'm a bum. So <laughs> Alina just is, uh, Alina just incredible. What, what more can you say? And Mike, is it fair to say that, uh, you're equally impressed with what team Tiranzoni has been able to accomplish over the past few seasons? Yeah. I mean, Tiranzoni is obviously just a ridiculously good curling team, you know, and, uh, you know, and they're, they're going to win a lot of games, uh, whether Canada shows up or not. You know, I, I think there are a handful of teams that can play the game at the level to win a world championship, right? There's a handful of teams from different parts of the world. So, um, you know, they're always going to end up around uh, the finals, you know, and, and on any given year. So it's just a question of who brings their game at uh, that time. And so far, it seems to be like you're you're right about Alina and, and Sylvana just seem to be able to bring it at a different level in the last few years at the world's. So I, I, even at slams, they're pretty strong as well. They've won a few, you know, so it's, they've really been the dominant team, I think, at the, at the world level. I think people under attribute the success to Pierre Charette, who helps them. I've always said, I've been saying for years, Pierre Charette's one of the smartest guys in curling. And, you know, you put him kind of uh, behind the coach's bench and talking to them and getting in their heads. He has an unbelievable way of getting people to play the different levels of curl. I mean, Guy Hemmings was a very bad curler who Pierre made very good, you know, back in the day. It's always been Pierre's strength, really. And and, and I would say that to Guy's face, just so everybody knows. Um, but, uh, you know, Pierre has is, is got a way of, of getting the most out of teams. So I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't minimize the coaching part of it. I think that has helped them a lot. You know, having that level of coaching has is, is been good for them, but they're obviously just a phenomenal curling team. So. Gentlemen, one of the big stories in Canadian curling towards the end of the season was the hiring of David Murdoch as the new director of high performance. Mike, can you share a couple of things that you hope David will focus on early in his tenure at Curling Canada? Oof. Uh, two things. I mean, I, I think they've already made some changes. I mean, to the qualifying, probably not as much as I think... Uh, they should have a, just in terms of the timing and making it a little more of a uh, less of a uh, craziness from the time you win the Olympic trials to going to the Olympics. I mean, I think the process, they seem to have, you know, made some changes to the briar. They seem to be making some, I mean, they haven't really announced the Olympic qualifying process yet. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know how much they can change it. Uh, the reality is, you know, there's, four or five teams realistically that have any kind of shot at going to the Olympics right now to John's point, you know, the, everybody else is just playing for, you know, uh, to maybe make a trial, you know, realistically, you know, if it's not one of the five teams that we've talked about already on this show, like that, that goes to the Olympics in four years, I'd be shocked. Like it would be a, a an unbelievable achievement for a team to come up and beat the, the Gushus, Dunstones, Cooies, and Botchers of the world, you know? I, I mean, and yeah, there's some other names that are close, like I know, uh, but they've got a long way to go, you know? And, and that's names of people who've already kind of been close, you know? So to think that there's anybody beyond that top six or seven, you know? So, I mean, the process beyond that, you're always just going to end up with those guys playing each other for the spot, you know? And similar on the women's side, I think. 
What about you, John? Uh, what are you hoping that David Murdoch will focus on in his first uh, year or two in his new role? I think both Mike and I are <laughs> exasperated because it's like, it is, I, I wrote about, I've wrote, written about this a few times. Like it, Me too. The way, the way, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the way that curling is, is in Canada is so deep seated that it, it's so tough. It's going to be so tough to make any realistic changes that would actually help in my opinion like i don't think i don't know i it's it's tough but the first thing for me and i've written about this a lot uh it, it, we need a better feeder system um we are we are going to lose and we already have lost an unconscionable number of curlers out of the juniors um you know and and yeah it's nice they have the u25 next gen classic and they do like a camp as like one thing you know, there is no, we have no feeder. There's no minors. There's no farm team. There's no, it's just, okay, congratulations, Landon Rooney. You won the Canadian juniors. Now, guess what? You have to donate tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars of your own money and hours and days and months of your time until you will be even remotely competitive. Have fun. Like it just, that's the problem. And, and I think the one thing that's working in Murdoch's favor right now is that after this quad, it is going to be pandemonium because everybody's retiring. Like this quad is going to be insane. I mean, we're talking about, we could lose 75% of the top curlers in Canada, at least on the men's side, women's is a little different, I think, but on the men's side, it, it could be like a bloodbath. So that to me is a perfect opportunity to start building something to support those curlers. It's like you're, and, and, and let's talk about teams that don't win, you know, like teams that are really good. You make it to four Canadian juniors, you make the playoffs a few times, whatever. And then you go back to Saskatchewan and uh, there's just nothing for you. You just get, you just get your butt kicked for a, a, all the time and you can't win and it sucks. So to me, there needs to be some sort of feeder, and I don't know what that looks like, but you need a way for these teams to be consistently competing against each other and not the top teams. Like, there needs to be some kind of build because the old way of just like, yeah, if you donate enough time and money, eventually you'll be competitive. That's over. Uh, it, it's an extreme amount of time and money. So to me, that's the number one thing. We got to be doing more to support the younger curlers in Canada because we're not doing it right now, in my opinion. Um, and then I think the second thing, and this is like, you know, talking to top curlers, you know, obviously, I, I you know, and I'm, it's the same with you, Mike, and, and you too, Frank, like, you know, we all have relationships with the top curlers and the way the decisions get made has got to be streamlined as well. I mean, it's like, how are we... How is this happening? Like all these rule changes are coming in. How are they happening a year after the quad starts? That's bananas to me. Like, what are we doing? You know, like I just, I know for a fact there is a, 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 a pretty like major ladies team that would look different if the current wildcard rules were in place one year ago. Like it just, there th that happened like teams... Because teams were thinking, oh, maybe we're going to get a second import. Maybe they're going to announce wild cards before provincials so we could technically be from anywhere, you know, whatever. Like, And Canada drags on all that stuff all the time. And it's like, how are you not communicating with the team so that they know? Like, everyone in curling knows. We've known since 1998, or, well, really, probably, I guess, 
2006 was probably the first like major, okay, we're putting teams together for four years, but whatever. We've had two decades where you know every fourth year is an inflection point. Why is that not an inflection point for the governing body also? It makes no sense. You're leaving all these curlers twisting in the wind. Who who can we play with? What are the rules going to be? How are we going to qualify for the Olympic trials? Like, how do you not know that information? So to me, that's the other thing too, is it's like, you got to put more information in the hands of these curlers. You want the Canadian curlers to be the best. Arm them with knowledge. And finally, John, let's take out that crystal ball. Tell me one thing that is not really on anyone's radar yet that will be a story early in the next curling season. Well, that's good. Well, this year was a little bit of a bloodbath. I'm excited for early next year because I think think there's a sneaky period in the start of year two of a quad where you also see teams change because teams have a freak first year where they go, oh, we're we're a team. Yeah, we're going to be together for the quad. But in the back of their mind, they're like, we're not going to be together for this quad. And then the first year of the quad, they blow up and they have a great year. Like, I think Grandy is a great example of that. Like, I'm not saying them specifically because I don't know anything about their team dynamics as far as that goes. This is in no, this is just an example of like, they exceeded, I'm sure they exceeded their wildest expectations this year. So what happens if you're Grandy and you go into next year and you go bang, bang, bang at your first spiel of the year? Then you go to the first slam, you go bang, bang, bang. Then you go to another spiel, you go bang, bang, bang. Then you go to your next slam, you go bang, bang, bang. And all of a sudden, it's like November and you're like, you know, 5 and 25 on the season. Does that change the dynamic? You know, you kind of coasted on a sort of Cinderella run and then all of a sudden you look around, you go, oh, maybe we're not as good as we thought we were. And again, I don't think that's true of Grandy. I'm just saying that's a perfect example of a team that sometimes you see teams, they overachieve in that first year. And then when they maybe achieve at the level, they maybe expected to achieve that in the second year, they go, actually, I hate, I actually hate this person on my team and I don't want to play with them anymore. So I'll be looking forward to seeing if there's like just one more little kind of wave in the middle of next year that, uh, that happens. And the final word is left to you, Mr. Fournier, take that crystal ball out and tell me one thing that is not on our radar right now. That will be a story at some point early next season. I, I like, I look at some of the things that happened this year. Like I look like a Colin Hodgson announcing he's retiring from curling. I, I sadly think there'll be more, more of that. I think there'll be some more big names off of big teams that say, you know what, I, I'm out. You know, this isn't because uh, the commitment level has been ramped up. The, you know, everything's been escalated. The, the amount of fun you have is just a lot less, you know, it's, it's a business. It's, it's amazingly hard. It is a huge sacrifice. It is incredibly tough. Like you, you talk about and talk about players who are hurting with injuries. You talk about people who have families, you know, who maybe want to, see their kids every so often when they have kids you know it's it's just a challenge to be playing at the level that you need to play at and the traveling that you need to do and you know you're talking about 18 20 events a year now where you're traveling like it's it's uh it's a tough pace for for people and you know the olympics are a great prize but only one team gets that you know every other team that's trying for it gets to say they tried and almost made it to the olympics but that's it (laughs) you know so you know, you got to say, is it is it the prize that it was before, or is it the same? Do people want to invest as much? I don't know. I, I was shocked to see that happen last year. So, I, and I could see it happen a bit more. You know, some guys stepping away before their time. 
Yeah, I think Fry, right? Fry's a great example of that. I'm sure Fry did not join up with Mike McEwen this year thinking he that was going to last one year and he was going to retire. In fact, I'm sure that that's not what happened. So, well, and yeah, I think no, if I, anything, I think right. they, yeah, and if anything, they went further than they I thought they would based on midseason results. You know, totally. But, yeah. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to John Cullen and Mike Fournier for joining me this week to discuss what was an interesting and often exciting curling season. Join me next week for the final episode of the 2022-2023 season, including a preview of what will be a slightly different from the Hack podcast next season. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, the Rock Logic podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hacks Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.